The old pilot's plane tails. Another of our aircraft is missing. I've often wondered why it's so easy to start up an aircraft. It seems that the more expensive or potentially dangerous an aircraft is, the easier it is to get it going without a key, security code, or some other way to ensure that the person about to fire it up is authorised to do so. It's fair to say that GA aircraft uh, that sit around small airfields without lots of security are often harder to pinch. There are usually door locks and magnetos are often turned on with an ignition key, but even those are pretty flimsy, but at least they're a deterrent. How about military aircraft? Surely those have some kind of prevention device. Well, not so as you'd notice. Military bases are pretty hard to get into, and there tend to be lots of armed guards around. But the aircraft themselves? Well, all you need to have is a little know-how, and you could be off on the ultimate joyride. So, why hasn't it been done, you ask? Well, actually, it has. Let me take you back to 1969 and the sacred pages of Hansard, the document that contains what is referred to as the substantially verbatim account of every speech made in the Houses of Parliament since 1909. On this particular day, Mr. Eldon Griffiths of Berry St. Edmunds stated that Sometime during the morning of Friday the 23rd of May, Sergeant Paul Mayer of the United States Air Force, who was stationed at Mildenhall in my constituency, was found staggering along the A11 road. The police, in accordance with the Visiting Forces Act, returned this young American to his base, where a security guard put him to bed to sleep it off. Sergeant Mayer was a man with problems very recently married and now separated from his wife by thousands of miles, he was becoming increasingly upset because his distressed wife desperately wanted him to come home as she was being sued by her ex-husband. In an alcoholic haze, Mayer thought he had found the perfect way to get home. He broke into the room of a captain, stole the keys to his truck and then phoned ahead calling himself Captain Epstein, and demanded that a C-130 was fueled up for a flight to the USA. The ground crew didn't question their supposedly superior officer, even though he smelled of drink and was alone, when he climbed into the C-130 and started it up and taxied onto the runway. Mayer had some flight training on small aircraft, but had never handled anything as big as a Hercules. But despite his lack of sobriety, he got airborne and flew south. The RAF and Civil Air Traffic Controllers, now alert to the unauthorised flight, tracked him as he skirted Heathrow and set off across the channel. The USAF scrambled an F-100 to intercept the stolen aircraft. On board, Mayer managed to use the HF radio to set up a phone patch to his wife, 
Jane in the States. Hi, honey, he started. Guess what? I've got a bird in the sky and I'm coming home. He spoke to her for some time until, after being airborne for around two hours, he said, Leave me alone for five minutes. I've got trouble. He was midway between Bournemouth and Cherbourg when he impacted the waters of the English Channel and died. Neither the wreckage nor the body of Sergeant Mayer were ever recovered. In an interview, his wife said that when he told me he was in trouble, I surmised the trouble must have been jets that were sent up to take him down. I'm sure I've not been told the whole truth. The official US Air Force report into the accident mentions that an F-100 jet fighter was scrambled from RAF Lakenheath shortly after Mayer took off in an effort to assist him, along with a C-130 from RAF Mildenhall. They were both apparently unsuccessful in establishing visual or radio contact with him. Back in the House of Commons, Mr Griffiths goes on to describe another USAF aircraft that was borrowed by a mechanic. This is not the first such incident. In June 1958, another United States mechanic took off in a B-45 bomber from Alkenbury Base in Huntingdon, and this aircraft crashed onto the London-Edinburgh railway line. Indeed, Mr Griffiths was quite correct. In June 1958, a mechanic, Airman Second Class Vernon L. Morgan, aged 21, absconded with a North American B-45A Tornado from the USAF base in Cambridgeshire. The four-engined B-45 was the USAF's first operational jet bomber and an important part of the United States' nuclear deterrent. The 55 nuclear-capable tornadoes arrived in the United Kingdom in 1952, but despite technical problems, these were the Tactical Air Command's first-line deterrent in Europe. I haven't been able to find out exactly how Vernon got access to the aircraft, but a newspaper article said that he took off into the night sky on a Friday around midnight. The B-45 normally required a crew of four to operate it, so perhaps not unexpectedly, particularly since he wasn't a trained pilot, Vernon's moment of glory ended when he died in a flaming crash only three minutes later plunging his aircraft into the main London to Edinburgh railway line only a few minutes before an express train was due. Mr Griffiths obviously had the bit between his teeth as he continued to cite more cases of aircraft theft. There have been other occasions in the United States since then. One does not have to be a devotee of Dr Strangelove to recognise that a huge aircraft carrying thousands of gallons of high-octane petrol, not to mention the possibility of even more deadly items, can be a lethal weapon in the hands of an untrained and possibly unstable man. I'm not sure to which other events Mr Griffiths is referring, but the history books tell us of many. 
Indeed, late one night in 1986, another 21-year-old mechanic, Lance Corporal Howard Foote Jr., climbed into an A4M Skyhawk fighter-bomber and took off from an unlit runway at the Marine Corps Air Station El Toro in California. The young man had always dreamed of flying a military jet and was an accomplished glider pilot, having set a world altitude record as a teenager. But after suffering an embolism in his elbow due to the high altitude, he failed his medical as a marine pilot. Having got airborne, Foot flew out over the sea towards San Clement Island, apparently flying loops and rolls, before returning after 45 minutes to try and land back at the airbase. By this time, the airfield lighting had been put on, and every runway was well lit since his theft had been discovered. On the fifth attempt, he managed to touch down safely and bring the Skyhawk to a stop, before being very promptly arrested. Not only was his flight extremely reckless, he had chosen an unserviceable aircraft to fly that night. The aircraft's ailerons were out of alignment and the nose wheel's steering was faulty. The Lance Corporal was charged with an impressive array of offences and faced up to nine years of hard labour, forfeiture of all pay, demotion and a dishonourable discharge. However, luckily for Foote, the actual penalty imposed on him by the court-martial was remarkably light. Just four and a half months, already served in the brig, and an other-than-honourable discharge from the Marine Corps. As it turns out, helicopters are also fair game for the odd jolly. In 1973, a young American soldier was trying hard to accomplish the particular set of skills needed to fly a machine that gets airborne by beating the air into submission rather than using aerodynamics. Sadly, he failed, always washed out in the common vernacular of the country during the instrument phase of flying. He was subsequently assigned to Fort Meade, but Private First Class Preston harboured growing resentment at being failed, since he felt he was a great pilot. Finally, a few months later, around midnight, Preston executed his plan and stole a U.S. Army Bell UH-1 Iroquois Huey helicopter from Tipton Army Airfield at Fort Meade. After hovering over the houses on the base for a while, he set course across Anne Arundel County at low level. Finding a caravan park, he apparently landed his Huey there, climbed out and ran around it several times before setting off again. In Dorsey, Maryland, he buzzed cars and knocked the antenna off a police car. By now, a couple of state police helicopters were following him as he flew over Baltimore Washington Airport before heading off down the similarly named parkway at 50 feet with no lights on. He then made his way down the South Capitol Street Bridge before turning west and heading to the White House. He descended over the south lawn for a while before landing, taking off again and setting course for the Washington Monument, 
where he turned his lights back on and hovered at head height for a while, before heading back to the White House. A trooper in one of the following helicopters described him as one hell of a pilot, calling the hour-long chase a modern-day dogfight. Arriving at the White House for a second time, Preston hovered over the lawn, but this time the Executive Protection Service opened fire with shotguns, and the Huey bounced roughly to a halt, whilst the state police helicopters blocked his path to the building. Ashamed to have done such a dodgy landing, when he just wanted to show everyone how good he was. Preston was wounded in the legs and then wrestled to the ground by the Secret Service. He pleaded guilty to wrongful appropriation and breach of the peace and was given one year plus a fine of $2,400. Since he had already been in custody for six months, all he ended up doing was two months hard labor before being given a general discharge by the army for unsuitability. Really? There are other stories, like the F-86 Sabre mechanic that turned a high-speed taxi test into a flight around the airbase, and the RAF wing commander engineer who got airborne in a lightning. For that story, you might want to listen to the tale called Taffy Holden's Lightning. Of course, pinching aircraft hasn't been the sole preserve of military mechanics. As recently as 2003, an airliner was stolen. A Boeing 727-200 series, registration November 844 Alpha Alpha, should you ever spot it, was sitting quite innocently at Quattro de Fevereiro Airport in Luanda. This former American Airlines aircraft had been with that legacy airline for 25 years, before being sold to a Miami-based lease company, Aerospace Sales and Leasing. They had leased it on to TAAG Angola Airlines, but it had been grounded and sat idle at Luanda for over a year, accruing more than $4 million in backdated airport fees. The FBI, who are a bit interested in this aircraft's whereabouts, describe it as being of unpainted silver with a stripe of blue, white and red down the fuselage. I wonder where that comes from. It was empty of passenger seats and fitted out with tanks to carry diesel fuel. Just before sunset on the 25th of May, two men boarded the aircraft. One was an American pilot, Ben Padilla, and the other was a hired mechanic from the Congo, John Mutantu. Neither men were certified to fly the 727, which normally needs a crew of three, but they had both been working with an Angolan mechanic to get the aircraft ready for flight. The machine started up and began taxiing out without clearance or talking to the tower. It manoeuvred erratically before entering the runway. The tower controllers tried to call it, but there was no response. It took off and departed into the setting sun and headed out towards the Atlantic Ocean. Neither the aircraft nor the men have ever been found. Reports found in the United States diplomatic cables leak 
indicate that the United States searched for the aircraft in multiple countries after the event. A regional security officer looked for it in Sri Lanka without result. A ground search was also conducted by diplomats stationed in Nigeria at multiple airports without finding it. Padilla's sister was reported to think that he crashed somewhere in Africa or was being held against his will. However, an extensive article, which included considerable research, was published in the Air and Space magazine, but was unable to draw any firm conclusions on the whereabouts or the fate of the aircraft or those who stole it. Perhaps we can conclude that crime doesn't pay. Music by bensounds.com Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.